Good morning. Welcome to Ordinary Life, an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church. Today is the second Sunday in Advent. Advent is always historically a rich time at St. Paul's. And beginning today, there are opportunities for um, get some gathered worship experiences. This afternoon at 4 o'clock, there will be communion on the grounds here. And um, you can go to the website to register, but if you find that to be difficult to do, just show up and um, you'll be welcome. And if you can't make that, there will be an online communion this afternoon. Uh, you can also go to the St. Paul's website to get a link for that. Natalie Negretti and I will be uh, leading that and Linda Portner will be the lay reader. And um, we can have as many as just want to show up. The instructions will be given at the beginning of the service. So, you want to say something about deadline for request? Have we passed it? Um, it's tomorrow. So we have, we, as you guys know, we give away all of the collected money from the year that you guys have so generously donated. Um, and tomorrow is the deadline for any requests for funds for nonprofits that you're associated with, work with, or contribute to yourself. So um, that link was on the announcement for this class, and it's the, the paper is on, ah, having trouble, <laughs> um, on our website as well. So if you have any last minute ones, please send them to me. If you have questions about it, you can contact Bill or me. And that's it, yeah. I don't know if you heard, um, but this couple of days ago? Yesterday. Yesterday, the historic church, middle church, <clears throat> middle collegiate church in Manhattan, the church where Jackie Lewis is one of the pastors, senior pastors, uh, burned. Yeah. And it was a raging fire. We could see the videos of that. I have not checked today, but at the last time I did check, they still have their tower and their bell. The bell in uh, the middle collegiate church is over 25 years older than the Liberty Bell that is in Philadelphia. Oh, wow. And the church goes back to 1620 something. Yeah, the building itself. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And, and of course, it's really worth reading about how they've come to terms with their history and... Yeah. And Jackie tells such a lovely narrative about um, the first pastor there being an owner of enslaved people. And she now, a black free woman, is talking about liberation and justice. In that church. In that church. But it is tragic. And we don't know why or how, but it is just, you know, our, our definitely positive love and energy towards them today because that's a big loss. But she and kept putting out tweets that were like, you know, the church has always been more than a building, yeah. and it's a big loss. So we're learning a lot about that during this COVID time and have great hopes for what the vaccine will mean for us in the, in the coming year. Um, I am always heartened to get emails from people who have just discovered Ordinary Life. I want to say a little bit about how jarring that might be to some people who just tune in for the first time last week or today and hear the content of our class. But uh, we send out a preview of what we're going to talk about in here every Friday morning. And then every Tuesday morning, we send out a summary that includes the text that Holly and I have in front of us. And I put it that way because it's not always what we say. Yeah. We, we drift sometimes. Yes. Yeah. And and you and you can subscribe to our podcast. Yeah, we have a podcast that we release on Thursday mornings called In Between, and you can find it on our website as well as on Apple Podcasts. And join on, join in. It's been fun. It's um, we're on week twenty-eight. Did you know that most? It's something like ninety percent or ninety-five percent of podcasts don't make it past the ninth week. So during this time. Thousands of people have decided to start podcasts and only went so far, but I think we're, we're pretty, we're doing pretty good. We're doing pretty good. weeks. <laughs> so 
So I used to do this every Sunday and um, quit. I used to have a singing bowl that I would ring every Sunday, but I've decided to bring these today and do this. That would get everybody hopefully to shut up because they were having such a good time visiting and having sacred cookies. Who comes to church to have a good time? I mean, <laughs> anyway, what I want to say is that um, if I can get this to work, no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you're welcome here. So Holly and I have been using now lately the Sermon on the Mount as found in the book of Matthew, found in the Christian collection of writings, to give us guidance in going through these times in ordinary life, shaping these talks. And what we are up to today is we are beginning to go through what the scholars refer to as the transformative initiatives in the Sermon on the Mount. Those of you who have any church-going experience likely are familiar with the formulaic way that these are put in um, the Gospel of Matthew. I think there are 14 of them. I'm not sure. Don't hold me to that. But they all begin the same way. You have heard it said, but I say unto you, and then there's something new. Uh, for example, the one that we are up to for today um, goes like this. You have heard it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you, there's the transformative clause, that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. Let's not worry about what that means right now, but just that introduces this particular saying. This is the way that uh, Eugene Peterson puts it. You're familiar with the command to the ancients, do not murder. I'm telling you that anyone who is so much as angry with a brother or sister is guilty of murder. Carelessly call a brother idiot and you might just find yourself hauled into court. Thoughtlessly yell stupid at a sister and you are on the brink of hellfire. The simple moral fact is that words kill. Jesus had a vision that did not simply transcend the many acts of violence that are described in the Hebrew scriptures, but also he had this transformative vision of what became the foundational guide for living righteously for the early followers of Jesus. Now, current biblical scholarship is providing the context for interpreting what the command, love your neighbor, originally meant, as well as its significance uh, for our time. Now, I make some assumptions about you, and they may not be correct, but I want to put them out there. One of the assumptions that I have for most people who attend Ordinary Life is that this is not your first time, that you've You've been attending, particularly during this time of COVID. If you're watching this, first of all, I thank you for hanging in there mm. because everybody's suffering from Zoom fatigue and screen fatigue. Or if not that, you've heard my teachings long enough to know um, some basic things about the Bible. I'm assuming that, that you know about the Bible's construction, about its history, as well as some other things about how organized religions came to be. I'm going to talk next week a little bit about how the Christian church, as we know it, evolved over the long period of time from Jesus. I also know, because I get emails reflecting this, that for some of you, what you're hearing in ordinary life is, is, is really new, and it can be stunning to you if what you have been exposed to is the <clears throat> educational curriculum that is, has been offered in Protestant Christianity for the last 150 years. Um, when you hear the kind of progressive content that 
is to be found in ordinary life that can be stunning for you. So today and next Sunday and maybe the next, I haven't thought that far ahead, interspersed with things that Holly will be saying, I want to offer material that is intended to do several things, at least to deal with several things. First of all, I want to talk about how this material we call the Sermon on the Mount came to be. It was not given as one sermon in one time at one place and somebody had a um, recording device, recording device and <laughs> held it out there and got the words of Jesus and got it down. So how, how do we have this material in the first place? And how has it been variously interpreted over the centuries? It has been interpreted in many different ways, allegorically, symbolically, parabolically, literally, all of those ways. And then how did it really function for the early followers of Jesus, this material, these teachings that uh, if you get the clutter out of the way, can really start to look like some of the sayings in the gospel according to Thomas. How did those isolated uh, wisdom teachings function for those people? And then, as I said, I want to give an overview um, probably beginning next Sunday about how the Jesus movement became the church as we know it today. And um, although Holly will be dealing with this a, a lot in what she does today, what do these teachings mean for our interior life? We began talking about this last Sunday, but what, what does this work, what does these verses mean for the deep work that we're called to do in following the narrow way? Mm -hmm. I appreciate how you're able to really offer us a grounding in history, in biblical and religious history. And um, what I like to try to do is apply what we would what we refer to so often as the living word to what do we do with it today? Yeah. How does it apply to what we're called to do and how we're called to be in, in this moment? Because it's a drastically different moment than 2000 years ago. So thanks for, for the grounding and the kind of shaping. I love to do this. Yeah, yeah. So the, the point of this verse is language matters. Words can be harmful and words can be healing. This relates directly also to right speech on the eightfold path. It is, as Bill has said before, wisdom tends to repeat itself no matter what the tradition is. That's how we know it's true. I would bet that most of us have heard the adage, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. This could not be further from the truth. I I think I recall you some years ago giving a whole lesson about sticks and stones, some maybe 10 years ago or some time ago. Mm -hmm. It's somewhere in my memory, so maybe that, that surfaced here. But none of us are immune from saying hurtful words, and none of us are immune from being hurt by them. And as the verse says, the simple moral fact is that words kill. This part of the Sermon on the Mount makes me consider two levels of communication. One is interpersonal, what I'm gonna call micro-communication. And the other is cultural, which I'm gonna call macro-communication. I think of the interpersonal as the way that we manage how we speak to our close loved ones, to people in our lives. And how we speak to them is an, a representation of how well we love them. How well we love them is a strong indication of how well we love ourselves, as well as how well we have been loved. Then there's this whole other level of interpersonal communication, which is what the body says. Metacommunication is nonverbal messaging. Let's say for an, for an example, an unwell mother might say to a child, I love you so much. But, and the child who is completely dependent on the mother for signals about the safety of his or her environment, sees in the mother's eyes, hardened eyes, a rigid body and a cold touch. The child cannot leave this field. The message is confusing. The body says one thing, the words say another. The, what, in, in essence, the, what is heard does not match the experience of what is heard. It's kind of like when you ask someone, how are you? And they say, I'm fine, but everything on their face tells you they're not fine. Right. 
So anthropologist and social scientist Gregory Bateson termed this a double bind. This is when an individual or a group receives two or more conflicting messages where one negates the other. The hardened eyes negate the I love you. On the macro level, language shapes cultures in both positive and negative ways. We say all men are created equal, but if we don't enforce it, the words become meaningless. The ways in which we do or don't mean what we say impacts the ethos of our society and how well people belong here. I have definitely said thoughtless things in my life, probably as recent, oh, I know definitely as recently as yesterday. I was hungry and I asked Josh to bring me soup and he didn't bring me soup and I said something mean. And then I had to walk it back and apologize. You said something mean to Josh? I did and he's perfect, I know. You know, I can tell you, of course, Gregory Bateson uh, was key to part of my training. He's yeah. just a genius yeah. in being able to do what he did. I, and as a as a personal counselor, I can tell you, I have run out of catalog of these double bind messages oh, yeah. that people yeah. get. Somebody might be raised in an alcoholic family where an uh, alcoholic parent will say to a child, I love you more than anything, and then- and Take a drink. <laughs> Not, right. not do things to protect the child. Right. Oh yeah. Or uh, the worst is in um, a book called People by the Lie, People of the Lie by Scott Peck. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. In a family where a young man committed suicide with a 22 rifle. And the next year the parents gave that rifle to his brother for a birthday gift. Oh, I can't even. <laughs> the, the, I mean, it, it, and it's not the, People are consciously, they're just not thinking. Right. And, and, and these ways of, the way that we communicate says yeah. a lot. It matters. Whether with our body or with our words. Absolutely. And people, and especially for small children who are looking for cues about their environment from the adults in their environment. Um, grow up with confused messages about the world when the two things don't match up. Right. So when virtual learning had just begun, I was frustrated with my youngest son. He, and the way I spoke to him reflected as much. He felt hurt. I may have told you this story. He ran out of the house and down the block and said he wasn't coming back. He was dropping out of my school. And in his lispy voice, he told me, I was the worst. And to my credit, he is one of the most stubborn and persistent kids I know. But to his credit, I'm one of the most stubborn and persistent adults he knows. So I have no idea where he gets it from. But I went outside. I called him to me. I wrapped him in my arms. And we both sat on the sidewalk and cried. He was hurt. And I was frustrated. But we restored right there in the middle of the sidewalk. I'm not really sure who walked by or who didn't walk by. I definitely should not speak to him in frustration. Though I'm pretty sure it will happen again. I'm pretty sure it has. And certainly if this is habitual with me, if I'm speaking more out of anger and frustration than I am out of love and compassion, the responsibility to fundamentally change my behavior is me, is wise with me. But life is frustrating and relationships are hard (laughs) and I'm not perfect and I'm even less perfect when I'm sharing a workspace with my three kids and everyone in my household. I've heard a lot of parents say over the years, we don't fight in front of our kids. I don't want them to see that. But what I've learned from studying conflict resolution, and I've studied it a lot over my life in different ways. I used to run a peer mediation group when I was a teacher and um, studied about the nature of conflict. And one of my biggest entries into conflict was nonviolent communication, which is all about restoring conflict, which is said to come out of unmet needs. So we can hold that, that we have this set of needs and any conflict that erupts out of it is when somebody's needs aren't met, then we can get at the root of it. That's a whole other thing. (laughs) But what I've learned anyhow about conflict resolution is that it's not so much that the conflict itself or that we should strive to be conflict free as we should strive to be restorative when conflict happens. Of course, there's a margin of what we're able to come back from. So I don't think we can continually do harm to our kids or our partners or our loved ones 
day in and day out. I don't think we can do physical and emotional harm day in and day out and expect restoration to heal all. There's a margin of what you would might call normal conflict. At some point, those scales tip if it gets out of whack and the relationship either needs to end or someone in it will self-destruct. But when we're in the confines of normal arguments, normal conflict, which I think all of us have in our relationships, when, when, when doing harm is not our norm, then I've learned that the conflict is not as damaging as the unwillingness to address it. If Josh and I have an argument, for example, in front of the kids and we don't restore, they don't see us restore, they're anxious. They feel like, oh, is everything okay? Or they get, you know, so, but if, but if we restore, and that's the most important part, then it alleviates that anxiety. I think it is healthy for kids to see conflict and restoration. In fact, when we do eventually hug and make up, which inevitably happens, it often turns into a big giant family pile on. Our speech matters. I think of the many, thing, many kids that I counseled over the years when I worked and taught in schools and they were told terrible things about themselves. This verse refers to idiot, calling someone stupid. Kids eventually come to believe these things if they are told these things enough. Their ego structure is damaged by them and they inevitably seek to heal that ego structure through peer relationships. And so often the peer relationships that they seek healing in are unhealthy because it's out of balance. Uh, before we get into deeper ways of understanding this teaching, <clears throat> I want to say some things about the history behind this text, as well as other texts in the Christian collection. Um, as I said a minute ago, I love doing this. I just find it absolutely fascinating. And some people find it disturbing to hear things that they are not used to hearing in the context of so-called Christian education. We are getting into the Christmas season. As I like to say, if the Christmas decorations are up, it can mean only one thing. <laughs> Thanksgiving is not far behind. We start celebrating Christmas earlier and earlier every year. And um, I think I when we were working on this this week, I think I said to you that a lot of people are not aware that Christmas is the only religious holiday that is also a federal holiday mm -hmm. in the countries that make up what used to be called the Holy Roman Empire, the Germanic European countries which we came from. Mm -hmm. Christmas is the only holiday that's a federal holiday. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking now of the work of Marcus Borg. I'm going to quote John Dominic Crossan in a minute. But of all these people, Robert Funk and all these people who have done this stellar scholarship in uh, what we call the New Testament documents. Uh, Crossan and Borg have a book called The Last Week, which is about the last week in the life of Jesus. They also have a book called The First Christmas, which is just, fascinating to read and it's full of information some of which uh, you're about to hear from me although I didn't take this from from that book but the point is that Bork says that everybody in in the western world knows Jesus knows something about Jesus it's impossible not to whether you ever go to church or not just all the ads out there about Christmas what's Christmas about oh it's the birth of Jesus and maybe that's all people know, but they know that much that it has something to do with that. And through the media, we get exposed to stories about the first Christmas. And what we actually get exposed to are two dramatically different stories, one from Matthew, one from Luke. There's no birth narrative in Mark. There's no birth narrative in John. And Matthew's story and Luke's story couldn't be more different, but they get squished together into one story. And that's what people are, that's what people believe. Maybe before Christmas uh, comes, I'll revisit this if it's appropriate and we have time. But not only are the stories different, they're parables. 
They were never intended to be taken as historical truth, as literal truth. It was not until fundamentalism, particularly in the 19th century in the United States, that these stories began to be taken literally. I'm going to repeat, oh, thank you. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite lines from John Dominic Crossan. Oops, it went away. It did. There it is. John Dominic Crossan says, my point once again is not that those ancient people told literal stories and we're now start smart enough to take them symbolically, but they told them symbolically and we're now dumb enough to take them literally. So the birth narratives are parables. For example, in the story uh, about there was no room for Mary and Joseph in the inn, that story is a parable about how we are to make room in our own crowded, distracted lives for the birth of the sacred. Mary is not unique. We're all meant to give birth to the sacred. We're all to give birth to Christ in our lives, in our work, in our being, in our personhood. And this parabolic understanding of the birth narratives makes for Christmas for me, that is filled with much more wonder and much more possibility as, as well as much more responsibility and much more joy. What a privilege it is to be invited by sacred mystery to make manifest God's very presence on this earth. That's an exciting story. But because of the pervasiveness of the secularization and liberalizing of the Christian story, so many people, if they know anything about the life of Jesus, think that it goes something like this. Now, this is crucial to the text that we're dealing with today. That's a background. Jesus was born. We know nothing about his early life except there is an incident told about when he was 12. He got separated from his parents when they went for a visit to a temple festival. They had to go back and find him. And when they found Jesus, he was in the temple debating with the rabbis, actually teaching the rabbis. And when Mary's mother and Joseph's father scolded him for being separated from the family and worrying them, he chided them by saying, don't you know that I had to be about my father's business? We have nothing else from Jesus until age 30. There is an assumption that he worked alongside Joseph in the carpenter shop. Not true. The word carpenter translated in the New Testament would be more rightly translated handyman or day laborer in uh, our, our culture. Uh, most people likely know that story anyway. Um, so he, Jesus appears again around age 30. He's baptized by John. Um, he goes off into the desert for 40 days. Number 40 is significant. Um, he has a ministry of teaching and healing that lasts about three years. In the process of doing his teaching, he so irritates the religious and the political authorities that they decide to have him executed. Three days later, he raises from the dead he hangs around for 40 days. There's that 40 number again. 40 years of wandering into the wilderness, 40 years in the 40, 40, 40 years. And then he ascends into heaven. And uh, my joke about that is, is that <clears throat> people who were not able to see Jesus ascend into heaven had ascension deficit disorder. <laughs> we visited the Prado in, in Madrid and saw a painting of Jesus' ascension. And you can just see his legs hanging out from That's the kind of funny. Top, of the, yeah. top of the painting. Yeah. Or sometimes you see like the hand of God like coming out of the clouds. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> 10 yeah. days later, the 12 apostles and Mary, it's a parable, are in the upper room when the Holy Spirit comes and, not, and in, that, in that event, Peter and the other disciples, flames of fire appear on the head. They are gifted with the ability to speak all the languages of the world and they go out and they 
preach the gospel to those assembled in Jerusalem. And that day, 2,000 people were added to the church. That's the story. Now, all of that that I just said is contained in a document called the Book of Acts in the Christian Collection. It is a fascinating writing. Mm -hmm. And I really, we don't, I don't teach much out of the Book of Acts. I might do that someday, but I really, really would encourage you to get a good translation, Peterson's translation of the New Testament and read the Book of Acts. It's an amazing tale. I mean, really amazing, I think. The Sermon on the Mount that we've been looking at was written uh, by a Jewish writer, Jewish Christian follower of Jesus, who's given the name of Matthew. It was composed sometime between 60 at the very earliest, more likely 80. That's 40 to 50 years after the death of Jesus. And there were no, as Holly said, no recordings of this. How were these stories that they put in their collection shaped? Where did they come from? Now, if you've, heard, if you've talked to people who have not bothered to get educated about the history of the Bible, they will say, well, it's in the Bible, so it must be true. Things in the Bible are not made up. Oh, yes, they are. If you, if you go up to the average person on the street and say, did you know if you rub blueberry yogurt on you at 3 o'clock under a full moon that you will be invisible, they all think you're nuts. <laughs> but if you go up and say to that same person, be they Muslim, Jewish, or Christian, did you know that the writings in your scripture contain errors, contradictions, um, Fables, um, if they're really, really conservative in their faith, they'll kill you, literally. Or they will shun you in some other way because you have just said something about their sacred book that should not be said. But the Bible was humanly constructed, and it is a book that has errors, it has omissions, it has contra contradictions. Fundamentalist Christians will tell you that God told Matthew, or in the case of the Pentecost story, told Luke to write down these words. God dictated the Bible. But if you step back in time and see the span between the actual events that were alleged to have happened 50 days after the death of Jesus, and when the book was actually written, 40 years after the death of Jesus. And you wonder, what happened during that time? What were these people doing? What were they thinking? Well, they were Jews in the case of Matthew, so they went to the synagogue. And there is a, a really well-reasoned argument that John Shelby Spong puts forth in one of his books about how the Christian narratives were actually shaped by the liturgical calendar of, of the Jewish worship, but they worship regularly in, in, in the synagogue. The Pentecost story, for example, is shaped by the new grain festival that you can read about in the Hebrew scriptures. And it is associated with Moses receiving the law on Mount Sinai, which was 50 days after the Exodus. 50 days of Pentecost, 50 days of this. And according to Jewish teaching, God issued the law in all 70 languages of humankind. 70 is also a number that appears many times in Christian writings as well as the Old Testament Hebrew collection. And Philo claimed that when the law was initially given, fire streamed from heaven and a voice from the flame became articulate speech. Flames appear on the heads of people in the Pentecost story. So the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew is constructed to show that Jesus is the new Moses. Moses got the law on the mount. Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount. Moses said, the law says, Jesus says, you have heard the law say, but I say, and there we've entered into this pattern 
of the early Christians, the followers of Jesus, actually before they were called Christians, taking material from the Hebrew Scripture, putting it into the mouth of Jesus, and then seeing how by his teachings and life, he transformed that Jewish law into something absolutely different. There's two things that sort of come up as you're talking. And thanks for all of that grounding. I love doing it that. Can, it, I wonder what it's like for you all to be listening to sort of the zoom in and the zoom out. But I kind of like that. Um, one is, you know, evolution. Jesus evolved a faith. Jesus evolved teachings. Um, here is the law. Here is what you do. Here is how you embody. Here is how you participate in enacting compassion and love. Secondly, it's no small irony that Jesus was murdered for his words. His words against the institution got him killed. Right. So that's a whole other thing to sort of contend with in this passage, right? If words can kill, what then uh, is being transformed in a way that also he put, him, he, was at, he put himself at great risk in this process of transformation? And Holly, I would go on to say that Jesus is still evolving. Yeah. I think that's our job. That right? is our job. Yeah. That is that yeah. is our job. And um, again, I don't want to anticipate too much about what we might do. But l let's go. Well, we we're going to talk about this next week. You don't know this yet, but <laughs> <laughs> listen. When up. Meister Eckhart says, "I pray to God to, to rid me of God," there is in that this evolutionary stance of. Wow, it's up to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? The personal responsibility of, of following the teachings that create and evolve. I, the only way I can put it is the language of love. Right. If we can say one thing about Jesus and his teachings, it is, a, it is love. It is about creating more love in the world. So th this is one of the reasons that I've come to say that for me, what it means to be Christian is to have a relationship with the sacred that Jesus had. Mm -hmm. And the only way that I'm going to know that is to continue to look at the story and say, how's that relevant for me? How do I live that What out? does that mean now? What does that mean now? Yeah. So what right. can it mean today? And this is what I'll get into to say that words can kill. As I pondered this this week, and I wasn't exactly sure how to address this at first. Cause I thought, well, duh, we know that murder is wrong <laughs> and we know not to kill folks. However, what we're also talking about is a kind of spiritual death that can happen when we use words that harm. And we're, we also can think of um, the way that words have actually killed. The first image that floated to my mind was, was Emmett Till, who was a little boy who we probably most of us know this story, who was from Chicago and visited his family in the South. Uh, during the 1950s. And he went into a store and bought something from uh, a store clerk who was white. And in some exchange of either handing her money and touching her skin or a, um, a seriously misinterpreted event, he was hunted down by grown men, beaten beyond recognition. I am not showing that picture today and shot in the head and then drowned, thrown into a river, the Tallahatchie River. Wow. The white women who, woman who accused him of assault, she cried the words assault, recanted her version of the story only a few years ago. So she confessed her wrongdoing. She confessed that her words got this young boy killed. Emmett Till supposedly violated some social expectation between whites and blacks in the 1950s by daring to speak directly to her. But her apology was too late. Her words literally got him killed and there was no restoration between his life and hers. Second, and more recently, I think of the video most of us saw of Amy Cooper's hysterical response to a black man, Christian Cooper, they're not related, who was birding in Central Park in the spring and asked her to leash her dog, which is a regulation in the park. Cultural learning, more ingrained and longer 
more historical in our nation than even him, Emmett Till, had informed her that black men can't tell white women what to do, even when it's asking her to do the right thing. She used her words as a weapon. She said to him, and he recorded this, I'm calling the police to tell them an African-American man is attacking me, which he was not. So nearly 70 years after Emmett Till, it's not possible to think that false words could have gotten a black man killed. Thankfully, this time they did not. But her words did harm. What they did was bring to the surface that how we wield our words matters. And the onus is on us as a culture to pay attention. These are both examples of macro communication, how beliefs or cultural learnings shape the way we talk and affect how the recipients of our speech experience belonging or safety. If we say, for example, black lives matter, but then we behave as the unwell mother does to the child by remaining hardened to changing policies or um, being more inclusive in our, in our systems, then we reinforce by our actions that our speech can't be trusted. Or if we say, and this is happening in the church today, that LGBTQ folks are welcome here, but our policies don't support their freedom to be fully open, the relationship is damaged the psycho psychological and the spiritual sense of reality is distorted. So after a while, pretending things are okay, just keeping on showing up and pretending we don't have words to tend to is not only exhausting, but it's a form of lying and denial. Socially speaking, double binds are forms of control without open coercion. So the, the control of the words by without coercing someone to do something, it renders, a, it results in a kind of confusion that makes it difficult to both respond and resist to the words that are being used. You're welcome here, but I'm not going to do anything to change the policies that don't make you welcome here. Another example of this just occurred this week. The Southern Baptist Church, um, which Careful. I <laughs> treading on thin ice over here. My friend Bill grew up in the Southern Baptist Church, which we all know. Um, anyway, this church also gave rise to folks like Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks. That, but they declared this week that critical race theory, which is an approach to the issue of systemic racism and analyzes systems and biases embedded in these social structures. So it's an important it plays an important role in helping us evaluate what is wrong here and how do we restore it. So the Southern Baptist Convention deemed critical race theory incompatible with Christian scripture, which in my mind can be farther from the truth if we are to take Jesus's words seriously, not literally. Right. Right. This means that they basically don't want to investigate how the church has been complicit with racial harm and even murder the people who killed Emmett Till were good Christians. The double bind here is we will take pride in King and Parks. We, were, we, are say, we will say we are against racism, but we will not talk about it. We will not repent. So the absence of words here could also be fatal. I think this is one of the craziest news stories I've read in a long time. Yeah, it's so crazy. Yeah. It's schizophrenic. It's a double bind. It's a double bind. You, this matters, but not that much. Right. Yeah. It's a double bind. That is, cl that is like classic double bind. Right. Uh, on the macro level. So the, the rest of the section uh, on the, of the Sermon on the Mount entitled Do Not Murder or Just Murder speaks directly to the importance of repentance. We didn't include that in, our, in the original slide that d gave the whole verse. But if you go and you read the three stanzas about this verse, um, the rest of it is about restoration. This is another element of Jesus's radical worldview, and it's one we have not yet lived into. Don't lose a minute, it says later. Make the first move. Go make things right. Restoration is as important interpersonally as it is culturally. I'm wondering, however, if culturally we've been in an abusive relationship with Native Americans, for example, with African Americans, with members of the LGBTQIA community for so long that it is past the point of restoration. I really don't know. I've seen some pretty rundown houses lovingly restored and revitalized. 
I've also seen them torn down completely, something new built instead. If it is past the point of restoration in this lifetime, and some things inevitably are, I think we have to consider what we want to build for future generations. There's this beautiful story about Howard Thurman as a little boy. He is a mystic. He was a, a, a preacher, a teacher to many of the civil rights activists early in the, uh, in the 1900s. And this story, I'm, he used a lot of analogies from nature in his meditation practice and in his teaching. And this story is probably one that stuck with him for his whole life. He tells us that he was about eight or nine years old walking through his neighborhood. He walked by an elder, a man in his 80s, who was crouched over the earth planting pecan trees. Why are you planting that tree, sir? He asked. I mean no disrespect, but you're not going to live long enough to taste the fruit from those trees. The old man paused and replied, Son, all of my life I've been eating from trees I did not plant. It is my job to plant for somebody else. I want to hold that for a second. Jesus also planted trees that he would not get to eat the fruit from. He planted ideas and ways of being in our life that he probably knew on some level that he would not see come to fruition. Words are like the fruit of trees. If we put the energy of love and compassion into them, the tree bears delicious fruit. If we put the energy of woundedness, resentment, and domination into our words, the tree bears rotten fruit. Sometimes, so we have an orange tree in our backyard, or our back space, whatever it's called. And during, in a really rainy year, this year was a rainy year, my orange tree produces oranges that split open before they ripen and they fall off the tree. So there are these green, hard balls that are split open and can't be used. Then they get thrown away or a lot of them get left on the ground to rot and flies eat them. Some years, my orange tree makes the most delicious oranges and the most delicious juice I've ever had. We collect them and juice the oranges. Did you plant that tree? No, it was there when we, when we moved in. So it's somebody else planted that tree. Thank you. Good question. Didn't even think of that. <laughs> if we are to participate, however, in planting restorative words, ones we may never reap the rewards of, there's a whole process to attend to here. We are one thought away from saying something kind, compassionate, and healing, or we're one thought away from saying something harmful, devastating, or murderous. Our thoughts become things. To do restorative work, we have to go all the way back to the thought or to the pecan. And we must get honest. What are the thoughts we're having? What are you thinking about yourself or your partner or the world right now? Can you observe that thought and sit with it and then Shift it if necessary. If words can kill, then it starts here with the thought. And are our thoughts ones that expand or constrict life? Are they curious or are they judging? Only you, only I, can be honest with ourselves in that inquiry. It sounds super trite to say that you can only be as kind or loving to others as you are to yourself, but it's also very, very true. Once you do this inquiry, the words that, um, the words, what, sorry, I'm like misreading my text. <laughs> I, was go, I was kind of off of it and then I went back and I'm not where I wanted to be. Once you do that inquiry, what words have I used that have slowly eroded my spirit or mm -hmm. others over the years, then we can begin the process of healing. So the first step is truth telling, just getting honest. There's no shame in honesty. Honesty is restorative. The Jewish calendar, which Jesus probably would have participated in, has an entire week devoted to atonement. That's from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur. It's supposed to be devoted to contemplation and restoration. In my household, I've instated a process for restoration between my kids. Um, you know that mommy followed by my brother hit me or he knocked over my Legos. It happens every day in my house and I do not love playing referee. It is um, not my favorite thing. Um, so I've taught my kids a way to restore with each other 
and kind of manage that themselves so that I don't have to interfere and manage. Sometimes, of course, I do have to interfere and manage, but it basically follows this script. I'm sorry I hurt you. Where does it hurt? So if they hit each other, where does it hurt? And that's a literal question sometimes. How did it make you feel? And what do you need from me? More often than not, the boys will say, I just need a hug. And 10 seconds later, they're like rolling around like puppies again and playing. <laughs> this happens about a dozen times a day in our house. So this is every day. Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur is an important week, but restoration needs to happen all the time. I wish it were this easy between adults, but as we know, we all carry our old unhealed hurts around with us. And these are the ones that make it so hard to sit with that pain inside of us. Inside of each of us though, is a small child who just needs to be held, who needs to be asked, where does it hurt? Bill, you once invi invited me as a process to- Is that you? That is me. <laughs> to carry a photo of myself as a little girl so that I could send her love anytime she needed it. Anytime that small self got wounded, I could just look at this picture and tell her, I love you. This is one way to integrate that small self into the grown self. And healing, really, restoration, is all about integrating. So, um, you can advance that. Yeah. Uh, Richard Rohr <clears throat> calls the Sermon on the Mount God's plan or Jesus' plan for a new world. Um, these teachings that we're dealing with in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 were used by the initial followers of Jesus up until the middle of the fourth century, the early part of the fourth century, as a guide for how to live in community with each other. I have learned through the writings of Daramut Amuraku to refer to that community as the community of empowerment, or, or the empowering community, you use beloved community, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. And you got that from Howard Thurman? Well, it's actually a, a Josiah Royce um, really began talking about the beloved community. Thurman learned from Royce. Royce thought that the beloved community started with individual transformation and that if transformed individuals could create transformed communities. That is in part true. But, but Thurman said, no, we need to live into that community. We need to talk with each other. We need to be with each other through conflict and difference. So he had an action part of this as a whole. So you can see the difference mm -hmm. between using any of those phrases, the beloved community, the community of empowerment, the empowering community. Mm -hmm. You can see the difference. You can feel the difference between those words and what the inherited religion most of us got gave us, which was these are teachings about the kingdom of God, mm -hmm. or worse, the kingdom of heaven, which is out there off after you die. As and, if it doesn't matter here. And it doesn't matter earth. here. Right. But it was a community. The thing that transformed the folks around this beloved community that eventually led to the biggest problem ever created by the church, which is when Emperor Constantine eventually made the Christian movement the official religion of the Roman Empire, the thing that attracted people around them was that the lives of people in that community were lives of joy and forgiveness and sharing and freedom um, and peace, it would have been unheard of until the first part of the fourth century for a Christian to pick up a weapon, unheard of. And no doubt at different times in the first few centuries, these teachings meant different things to those communities as they evolved in time.
The, the Christian, the Jews who became followers of Jesus could find in these teachings a guideline for what would be called Jewish perfectionism. Uh, that's not a no notion that is foreign to Methodists. You know, Wesley urged his clergy to go on to perfection. One scholar said about the sermon that it was an impossible ideal that was meant to drive people into desperation so that eventually they would turn to the grace of God. Grace is a word that is beginning to find new popularity in spiritual writings um, now. Brian Stevenson talks about the necessity for grace and mercy on a collective secular level. And he is really, really wonderful to listen to. In, that. in, in her book that I have not finished reading, Kathleen Singh's book on unbinding, which is her understanding of the Buddhist Four Noble Truths, mm -hmm. Her word for God is grace. Mm -hmm. And that's so that mm -hmm. some saw it as an interim ethic that was to be used by Jewish people until the Roman Empire would fall and the Jewish Empire would take over. However you read it, it goes far beyond the legal requirements that the Jewish people were familiar with. And it seeks to inaugurate a more courageous and pro provocative commitment to peace and to justice. And what it does is invite deeper levels of integration of how love is to be lived out in, in daily life. I used to submit jokes to the Chronicle. I'm a jokester. <laughs> I love jokes. I love to tell jokes. We had an experience this week uh, at Central Market, and when I left, I said, that's an accomplishment. Because, you know, they have floor people. Mm -hmm. who walk around on the Central Market, and because I shop there every week, I've gotten familiar with them. And one of the floor people came up to me this week as we were shopping and said, got a joke for me? <laughs> Made my day yeah. that you get known like that. But I used to submit jokes to the Chronicle. No doubt one of the reasons the Chronicle's readership is slipping is because they don't carry jokes anymore. Here's one I submitted. Neighbors of mine say they intend to send their son off to a Bible college. When I asked their reasoning, they replied, one book, four years, how hard could it be? Well, getting the teachings of Jesus is hard. It's very difficult. We're going to pick up, talk about that next week. They're difficult to understand. They're difficult to live. I, I want to give you, for those of you who might be jarred, stunned, whatever the word is about uh, what you hear Holly and me talking about, about the Bible and its history. I'll use some words found by Shelby Spong. They are, they're so true. Shelby Spong has spoken in this place before. But these words I could have said. I treasure the Bible. I live in it and work on it all the time. But it is not the Word of God. It is the tribal story of a particular people. And the best thing about that story is it keeps growing and evolving. Mm. Yes. The first thing Jesus said about getting into this empowering community was that to enter its upside down logic, people are going to have to change their minds about a lot of stuff. Repent. That's what repent means. And one of the ways he demonstrated that was by going about breaking a lot of rules and a lot of regulations and including people who were considered the outcast. Jesus' big idea was that this community of empowerment was both an outer event and an inner reality. And what we're holding up for consideration today is that there is little hope, we can change that, for love's will and way being made manifest in the outer world mm. if we don't work to inhabit the kingdom within. Loving the enemy means, first of all, confronting that within us which we do not want to acknowledge because it goes so contrary to the image we have of ourselves. If you want to know what that inner adversary looks like, just pay attention to who ticks you off, <laughs> what irritates you. That'll be a, a big clue. Um, I, I can't prove this, but I have a feeling that what blocks many people from having a contemplative practice is that they don't want to confront what might arise in the silence mm. and what might come up there. 
In my counseling people, I've talked to countless people who have been recipients of their parents' own unowned shadows. And right now, in our country, we're having an excellent opportunity to see how African Americans are the recipients of white people's unacknowledged shadow sides. We also have the rise of this movement called neo-Nazism, where people not able to see the inferior, that means lower qualities in themselves, project those unknown, unrecognized qualities outward onto others. So what you are seeing is the hate, fear, and loathing that in fact they have for themselves projected outward. So here's a truism that you can take away from here today. No one else is your problem. The beginning of the solution to the problems that ail all of us is first to recognize that the enemy is within. And we have to deal with that and our own unconscious complicity in systems that are so contrary to the teachings of Jesus. When we're willing to give up how right we are about things, race, religion, economic theories, and the like, then we will begin to be part of a wider community. This is the reason that Carl Jung said that most of what is in the shadow is pure gold mm. because it contributes to our healing and we can't heal what we don't acknowledge. So these disowned, repressed, denied aspects of ourselves are like the frog in that fairy tale that the prince, princess kicks and, and the frog is transformed into a handsome prince. So Jesus takes these rules and regulations that the people knew, the law of Moses, and then he adds to each and every one of them a new inner dimension. Now, Holly suggested that you read the whole thing. We didn't deal with this third paragraph, second paragraph in this today. Go read the whole thing. Get a good translation and read it and see that what this teaching is saying is that we have to make the first move. And the first move isn't outward. The first move is inward. It's we who have to come to terms with things, not our opponent. It's the task of consciousness to recognize and be reconciled to unconsciousness. This was the single hardest thing for me to apprehend in um, undergoing Jungian analysis. Mm. My analysts would say unconsciousness responds to consciousness in the same way that consciousness regards unconsciousness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I would go, huh? <laughs> unconsciousness responds to consciousness in the same way that consciousness regards unconsciousness. Got it? Yeah. Yeah, no? I've got it. Got totally it. got it. John, you got it? <laughs> no, he's not going to say. Yeah. Unconsciousness down here. Yeah responds to consciousness in the same way that consciousness regards unconsciousness. Mm -hmm. So that if consciousness says, I'm not going to pay attention to you, unconsciousness says, okay. Yeah, I'll make myself known. I'm going to make myself yeah. known. I'm going to make you have an affair, an addiction, a depression, something. I'm going to get your attention. Mm -hmm. We have to respect what's offered to us from that realm, and that's the way that we began to make this particular teaching good. It's good news, though, if we can take the courage to make the journey within and embrace the shadow, then we can live with the confidence that we're doing our part to live in a less divisive and a more healing and, and loving world. Shall I read this poem? Yeah. Okay. This is the last bit. But this poem found me this week and it seemed like a good benediction for this, this week's material. It's accompanied by an animated illustration which we'll include the link in the, in the summary. And the poet's name is Padre Gotuma. He's an Irish poet, theologian, and conflict resolution. It all begins with knowing, nothing lasts forever. So you might as well start packing now. But in the meantime, practice being alive. There will be a party where you'll feel like nobody's paying you attention. And there will be a party where attention is all you'll get. What you need to do is know how to talk to yourself between these parties. And again, there will be a day, a decade, 
where you won't fit in with your body even though you're in the only body you're in. You need to control your habit of forgetting to breathe. Remember when you were younger and you practiced kissing on your arm? You were onto something then. Sometimes harm knows its own healing, comfort its own intelligence. Kindness too, it needs no reason. There is a you telling you a story of you. Listen to her. Where do you feel anxiety in your body? The chest, the fist, the dream before waking? The head that feels like it's at the top of the swing or the clutch of a gut like falling and falling and falling? It knows something. You're dying. Try to stay alive. For now, touch yourself. I'm serious. Touch yourself. Take your hand and place your hand someplace upon your body and listen to the community of madness that you are. You are such an interesting conversation. You belong here. Wow, thanks for that. I love that. Mm. I love doing this with you too. <laughs> no matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo. So watch your step and we will see you here next week.